Well, we're in Exodus chapter 15 today, and we get <coughs> a terrible, terrible, bitter taste to the turn of Israel's history. This, this passage today is going to uh, reiterate something that will come up frequently in the Old Testament, frequently in the book of Exodus, frequently in the wilderness wanderings, and even in the New Testament, the command of God to us, do not grumble, exclamation mark, do not grumble. This is, a, this is a command that we will see come out by implication here and explicitly in the New Testament. We have, we have just, in the last couple of weeks, we, we saw God's tremendous salvation at the Red Sea. God judged the Egyptians and his riders and the chariots, and he rescued the Israelites out of the ocean, and, and the waters came in and swallowed up the enemies. And there, in chapter 15, they stood on the bank of the Red Sea, and they sang a song of Moses, and they glorified God, for he has triumphed greatly the horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea and they're filled with confidence. They're filled with joy, singing this, this million people chorus to the Lord God. And you would think, you would think that now we'll just go from better to greater. We'll, we've, we've seen salvation, we've sung a song, and now it's all uphill from here. It's going to be glorious, but, but that's not at all the case. We see first in this passage, we've got inklings of it in earlier passages, and in passages to come for the next three weeks, we see that the Israelites become a grumbling people. That which will become their downfall as a generation. Look at Exodus chapter 15 and verse 22. And we will be reading until verse 3 of chapter 16. And then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah, which means bitter in Hebrew. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it at them. Sorry, that's, that's my translation. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord bless his own word in our midst this morning. Grumbling. Grumbling will be the deathly and fatal downfall of this generation who, sorry to give any spoilers, you sh probably should have read it already, this generation will die out in the wilderness, save two people. This is the first in a series of what becomes their besetting sin. Grumbling against the Lord and against his anointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. It's not, it's, it's not merely that they see a problem. Grumbling is not noticing a problem. Grumbling is not bringing that problem to the Lord. Grumbling is not even talking with other people about a problem. Grumbling is a faithless kind of focusing on a problem. It is, it, it, its great marker and characteristic is that it has no faith. 
Grumbling notices a problem and does not see beyond it, does not see beneath it, does not see the promises of God. It simply complains. It, it, it simply finds a problem, severe or minor. It doesn't really matter for the grumbling spirit and heart, as long as there's some problem. And if there's not, one will make one up or will cause one for the sake of being able to vent and rant spiritually, complaining about it to God without faith. There are plenty of examples in Scripture where there is complaining to God with faith. And that's okay. In fact, it's a blessed thing for a soul to do. We saw this back in the early chapters of Exodus as the Jews under slavery cried out to God and their moaning and their groaning and their tears came to the Lord and he heard them and he acted and then sent Moses to be their deliverer. We see also in chapter 6 as Moses struggled with the, with the reality of what his ministry was to do to go and poke the eye of Pharaoh, so to speak, and get himself in all sorts of danger. And as he felt faithless, he went to God and cried to him and God reassured him with his promises and his presence and his name. I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers. That wasn't grumbling. We've also known that at other times, like in uh, Psalm 42, we know that there are, there are times when, when the psalmist will cry out to God. And it sounds like grumbling until you hear his faith. This is what he says, Psalm 42. I say to God, my rock, sounds pretty good. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Sounds like grumbling. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you see the turn that takes? God, why have you abandoned me? Why is my life, why does the enemy take victory over me continually? And then he almost catches himself. He slaps himself in the face. He throws a pail of water on his own soul. He says, soul, get up. Hope in God. We shall see his salvation. We can hope in him who is our deliverer. There is grumbling, and grumbling is faithless complaining. We, we even see Paul in Acts chapter 16. He's thrown in prison with Silas. Have them been beaten up and horribly treated. Now, now, are they at that point grumblers? Do they complain against God and against their, their evil providence that brought them to so much pain? No. What does it say happens that is heard in the, in the silence of midnight from Silas and Paul's cell? They hear hymns. They hear songs. They hear praises to God while they're jailed. Paul even said that in 2 Timothy 2, sounds like grumbling at the beginning, and then you see his faith. He's writing to Timothy while he's in prison in Rome, and he says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Grumbling? But... The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Not grumbling, mingled with faith. It is simply a, it is simply a stating of his situation, not a grumble, or, or even Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the perfect man, the God-man. Even Jesus did what on first taste might sound like grumbling. There is he hung on the, on the cross for our salvation, bearing in his body our sins and suffering to his soul and in the outpouring of his blood, paying for our redemption. There he cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, by the end of his time on the cross, we, we see and we know for sure he was never hanging faithlessly. He was never grumbling. He was not, he was not griping against God because his last words on the cross are the faith-filled Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Grumbling is not noticing or talking about or praying about a problem. Grumbling is refusing to have faith and therefore complaining against God in an unproductive, unspiritual, unredemptive, hopeless, pointless rant. Sometimes it's to God or at God. Sometimes it's at other people or about other people. Or sometimes it's at the spiritual leaders or the pastors or the committee members or something of the like. The key mark of grumbling is that it has no faith. And this becomes the downfall of this generation. God would keep his promises to Israel as a nation. He would never break those promises. He will take this nation from their slavery into the land of Canaan that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However... 
However, he would take one generation longer to do it than he had to because these people will gripe against him, complain and grumble one too many times, and he will say, that is it. Happens in Numbers. Numbers chapter 14, God, God brings them up to the, to the border of the promised land, and they grumble against Moses, saying, we're going to die if we try and take it. And God burns in his wrath and says, these ten times I have borne with them. And they have tested me and they have grumbled. Therefore, he says, as sure as I live and as sure as my glory will fill the earth, this generation will never see the promised land. It was grumbling that made God promise in his wrath that they would not enter the rest of the promised land. They say multiple times in Exodus and in Numbers, it would have been better to die in Egypt. Or something like, I miss when we used to eat well and live in luxury back in Egypt. (laughs) Grumbling is a terrible historian. They keep on using this line of, I wish we'd stayed in Egypt. In Numbers 11, the the pillar of fire and smoke around them, God just turns up the thermostat and goes, deal with it. And he starts burning the outward edge of the camp and kills a whole bunch of people because they grumbled. In another point, in in, uh, Numbers uh, 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 14... They, uh, uh, sorry, in number 16, they complain about the leadership. They're griping against Moses. They're complaining about it. They're like, hey, you know, we're all just as qualified to be leaders here. And so the sons of Korah come up and go, hey, how about our guy who's on the same sort of family lineage as Moses? He should be doing the leading. We're all holy, right? They were egalitarians. None of this hierarchy. We're all equal. Let's get our appointed guy in this democratic church. here. Let's get our favorite guy up into leadership. And God goes, cool, come over here if you want to vote for him. Gotcha. And the ground swallows them up and kills them all. And then the fire from the temple just jumps out and burns 250 extra people because they're still complaining about God. And then a plague breaks out in the midst of them and more than 14,500 people die. Does God like grumbling? Does God tolerate grumbling? Of course, he is gracious, but this generation is to us an example and a warning that we must not be grumbling people. Psalm 95 says that for 40 years I loathed that generation in the wilderness because they grumbled. Psalm 106 says that he saved them from the hand of the foe. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. All the waters covered their adversaries. None of them was left alive. But then they believed his words and then they sang his praise. That's what we did last week. Exodus 15. What's the next verse say? But they soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel. This was the downfall of the generation that saw the greatest amount of miracles, I believe, of any of the Jewish generations other than Jesus. They saw every plague in Egypt. They saw the tremendous Red Sea redemption. They had God in smoke and fire, but it's this generation that God kills and leaves as a dust crumb line and trail throughout the wilderness for 40 years of corpses. That's what he does to them, the most blessed, miraculous, witnessing generation, because they grumbled. And it's Paul the Apostle who actually picks it up in 1 Corinthians 10 and says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, he says, here's here's a hermeneutical help. When you read the Old Testament like we're doing today, here's what Paul wants you to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Now, these things happened to them... As an example, and they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Are you a Christian? Are you in the church? Do you see that in this new covenant there is the fulfillment in Christ of everything prophesied back in the Old Testament? In Christ and in his church, God is dwelling with us in a way that is more powerful than smoke and fire. Jesus has bled for us in a way that is more powerful than the Passover lamb. Jesus has died for us in a way more powerful than any and all of the 
sacrifices of the Old Testament. He is with us in a way that is more powerful than the temple. And we say, praise God, we have the blessing of being this side of the cross, understanding the gospel, having a finished scripture. We praise God. And Paul says, but be warned. If yours are all the more the blessings, if yours are all the more the privileges, then keep watch all the more. Lest like that generation, you be surrounded by blessing, but inwardly faithless, and it amounts to nothing but cursing for you. Do not grumble, Paul says. Here's what grumbling does. Look at verse 22 and 23 of chapter 15. A couple of characteristics of what kills faith and what causes grumbling. Number one, grumbling always seeks to blame somebody. Look at verse 22 and 23. Moses made Israel go out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness. Three days they went in the wilderness and found no water. So at this point, at this point, probably the stores of water that they had had have run out. At three days is about the amount of time that the body can go to its extreme of survival before it dies without water. We can go a bit longer without food, uh, but we cannot go longer than three days or thereabouts without water. They are getting to a very, a very important uh, uh, time stamp, and here they are without water. Now, it says in verse 23... <coughs> When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, so they named it Marah. Now, you'd think, they're pretty dumb. <laughs> they came to a place called Bitter and were surprised when it was bitter. But that's not, not at all what's happening. Exodus is actually just, it, it's, it's retrospectively called Marah. In other words, he's saying, they came to the place that they ended up calling Marah. It wasn't labeled bitter when they got there. I, I can relate to this a little, and, and I want us to sort of get into the mindset of the, of the, of the Israelites, how, just how frustrating that would have been. They've been three days. They've been thirsty, and then they see an oasis. They see a big pond of water, and they drop their things. They yeet their kids to the husband. They start to run. They're pushing each other aside. They don't know it's bitter until they, they drink it. They jump down in relief. They splash themselves. They take a cupful, a bowlful, a handful, or they just throw their face into the water, and they drink a mouthful, and then they realize that it is bitter. This happens in nature. The, the minerals and the salt so, so toxify water that it becomes non-palatable. Non it, it's not potable. You can't drink it. It will make you unhealthy, make you sick. I, at one time, I was doing, uh, doing yard work. It was hot. It was summer. I was doing some mowing. And, uh, and my wife was getting the kids ready. We were going to go out together to the park or something. And here I'm just dripping with sweat. It's hot. I throw the mower into the shed. We, I get the kids in the back of the car. Put the baby, baby bag, a couple of years ago, putting the baby bag into the back of the car. And my water bottle's sitting there in the bottle holder. And I go, yes, that's what I need. Why have I not had a drink of water yet? And I take it, unscrew it, and just take a gulp. Related story. One week earlier. Timing is important. One whole week in the summer earlier. I'd been out with my son, and I'd forgotten to take his milk bottle, so I'd quickly made him some milk in my bottle for him. <clears throat> you see. And then, obviously, we played in the park and left it in the car, and then off we went. Anyway, one week later, thirsty, quenching, sweating, relieved, looking forward, mouthful, and the contents of my stomach painted the pathway immediate wrenching. I was, I was taken down to my knees. I had no clue what had just happened, but every ounce of me was filled with, with why God? Why me? Why, why today? What have I done? I, I, it, was, it was disgust. I've never wrenched that hard. I've never yelled that. Oh, it's pathetic. My neighbors must have, must have uh, an exorcism or something going on. Here's the Israelites. They, they didn't just hear, hey, there's water, but it's bitter. They got there. They knelt down. They drank deeply and then spat it out. So humanly, we understand that they are frustrated. They, they, they can complain here or they can at least, they can acknowledge that they are in a very hard, difficult situation. But look what verse 24 says. So the people grumbled against Moses. Why Moses? What did he do? How is this his fault at all? Well, they don't care. They don't care whether it's his fault or not. They just love to grumble. It says, they said to him, what shall we drink? 
Tremendous question. Why are you blaming Moses? Blame the husband who forgot to pack the water bottle in the baby bag. That's him. Why is this Moses' fault? They don't care. They're not ultimately wondering about who's to blame. They just love to blame somebody. People are like this. Some people, they're not solution people. They're not, they're not problem solvers. They, they, just, they just will feel better. The problem's half solved if I can just point at somebody and find out who's at fault. Right? Not to hold them accountable. Not to sort of bring a solution. Just, hey, who did this? Hey, wait, wait, who, who can we blame for this? I'm like, hey, hey, then there's, then there's the more mature people who are just always solution-minded. How can we fix this? How can we move on from this? We don't have to, we don't have to get into uh, and beat up the guy who did it. Let's just fix it. But the, the Israelites aren't like that. They are, they are bitter people, and they are not made bitter by the bitter water. It would be an error to think that they are good and godly, faith-filled generation who came to the bitter water and because of the bitter situation were made bitter. No, no. They looked faithful as long as they were getting saved, but the bitter situation was the test. The bitter situation became the revealer of the bitterness that was inside them all the time. You see, bitter people can be very happy as long as things are going their way. Bitter people can be praising God and thankful to God and just the most, just the most charismatic worshippers or just the most faith-filled men, whatever it may, as long as things are going fine. It's the bitter situation that exposes the inner bitterness, and so it is in this generation. And ultimately, I mean, they do it again in chapter 16, verse 2, which we read. When they're hungry, they turn to Moses and Aaron, and they grumble against him in the wilderness, them in the wilderness. They, they just find somebody, they find the figurehead, this is spiritual leadership, lessons 101. People find the most visible person and just blame them. But what is ultimately so sinful and blasphemous about this is not that they're blaming Moses and Aaron. It is they know who they are explicitly or implicitly blaming because who led them there? The pillar of smoke and fire coming down from heaven to the earth. The angel of the Lord, God in their midst. As soon as they start complaining about where they got, they are either out of cowardice, blaming Moses so they don't have to go on record as blaming God, or they are just out of folly and ignorance, saying of God that he is either an ignorant fool who can't read a map, or he is an evil God who delights to make us all dead and break his promises by killing us in the wilderness. Do you see why God despises grumbling so much? It blames, but ultimately, whenever we grumble, whoever else we're pointing to, maybe, maybe we were, we're good Christians, we'd never blame God, but we always are. Grumbling is always ultimately blaming God because whether it was our husband, our father, our wife's idea, our kid's fault, whatever led us into the situation, we are always ultimately being led by the invisible, sovereign hand of God by his providence. Tough work situation, there's somebody else to blame. Tough living situation, there's somebody else to blame. Before you grumble, God put you here and wrote every page of your life for his perfect plan. Be careful. Be careful with grumbling. Grumbling loves to blame people. <coughs> Secondly, though, grumbling is ultimately ungrateful. Verse 23 and 24 here, we see that <coughs> they say... They came to bitter water, and, and when they saw it was bitter, they named it Myra, and then the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? They are bitter, they are angry, they are distasteful because they didn't get water easily. They didn't have running water. They couldn't just turn a tap. They couldn't have the sweetness of what they wanted uh, already. They are already ungrateful, right? You might think, in Exodus chapter 15, they're singing in the throng of a million people. They must be grateful. No, they're grateful when things are going well. But they're ungrateful. You, you can only test ungratefulness in times when there is not much to be thankful for. Sometimes we think it's the other way around. Give them lots, and do they say thank you enough? That's not the best test. The best test is take away something they feel entitled to. What do they do then? God knows that. And he tests his people here by giving them just a bit of drink. That's, that's all it was. It wasn't going to kill them. And they are not even a, a number of days. They are three days, or by the time chapter 16 starts, they're one month since the greatest act of redemption that the world has ever seen. 
the Red Sea salvation, the plagues coming down upon it. I mean, they are not that far removed and already they're griping about what they think God needs to give to them. Grumbling exposes a deep ungratefulness. They're looking at all of this situation. Yeah, I may not be whipped anymore. My kid may have a chance to, you know, be not a slave. All those things, kind of good, but this is ultimately a net loss. God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ultimately bad for us. I don't agree that this is, this is ultimately a, a good and positive thing that he came into our lives and disrupted our plans. That's, that's how they're talking. It is ultimately childish. There's, there's, there's really no way to, to picture it other than, other than children. Children are naturally like this, and so we don't blame them too much. We disciple them out of it, but uh, children are naturally like this, that they are geared, as those who have parents to trust in, they are naturally geared towards their wants. As, As a baby, everything they want, they actually need to survive, and as they grow up, you need to teach them the distinction between those things. You don't need the Spider-Man doll, actually. That's, let, let's redefine the word need here, okay? No, you don't need the latest iPhone. Can we just do a, another word study on the word need here, please? The, that's, that's, chill, that's, that's parenting, teaching those little humans the difference between want and need. But here's, here's the Israelites. They haven't learned that. Whatever they want, they assume they're entitled to and they need. They are ultimately unthankful. This is a great marker of immaturity and childishness in spirituality is flux. You might think the biggest sign of being spiritually immature is those people who never have these tremendous spiritual experiences. Not true. You might think of the, a great sign of maturity, maybe in yourself or others, as those people who are able to have mountaintop spiritual experiences, who can name in the past times that they've done, seen, achieved great things this long without that sin. Oh, I did this fast one time. Oh, oh I've seen God use me in saving souls. And these. I used to have a job or a ministry like this. Yeah, wow. We are far too tempted to think of maturity when people can list mountaintop moments. But if that's the case, then the Israelite generation is the most mature ever. The great marker of spiritual maturity is not great moments, but a constancy. My son loves being taller than me, and he's three. And the only times he's taller than me is when I grab him and I throw, this is love, not anger, I throw him upwards Outside, no roofs. Throw him upwards and he's about two meters above my head and then he's back down again. He loves yelling while he's up there, I'm taller than you, dad. And it's kind of true. I've never, I don't know what it's like to be that high in the air like he does. That's true. But he always comes back down. There's people who try and live like that spiritually and say, I'm tremendously mature. I have a great relationship with God. I've been at a great church or I've done tremendous things. I've seen God do things. I saw a miracle happen. I've, I've read the Bible this many times. I used to study this. And banking on past successes or mountaintop moments forgets the fact that they came right back down to an infant height. Rather, the great, and I want this to be pastorally relieving, don't seek the tremendous extreme moments, seek an average constancy, disciplinedness, and consistency in your spiritual walk. I'm always taller than my son if we do it on averages. And so the spiritually mature Christian, unlike these Israelites, Don't go from high point to low point, but rather, regardless of the external situation, they are able to be constant in their faith, struggling sometimes, joy-filled other times, but constant in faith. My God is here, it will be okay. My God is here, he has made promises. And that's the the next thing that, that, uh, uh, that grumbling does, is that it forgets God's promises. Often, 
Often in our, in our grumbling, it's about silly things. Can we all just admit that this morning? It's, it's often about silly things. The, they changed the color of the carpet at church without asking me. The, the ministry leader decided to do something that I wasn't all on board with. It wasn't a pure and ultimate and happy democracy where everybody got along with unanimity. Yeah, real world. Like a, 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 I wasn't asked my opinion on whether we add that instrument or not. I, I wasn't asked whether I wanted to do that thing. We, we grumble about silly things. Or, or at home, it's the it's the it's a little thing that, that our husband does that annoys us. It's a it's an offhand remark that our wife says which cuts us down. It's it's just that we're offended by something. It's the traffic. Amen, somebody. It's the M1 on Monday morning, and we're grumbling. We feel like life is over, or it's just our schedules are just thrown off. It's our it's our sports team, or or it's a stain on our favorite shirt. Whatever it is, there's a lot of silly things we just grumble about. But there is also some very genuine things. The danger is to think that a legitimate affliction makes for legitimate grumbling. To give them some credit, the Israelites are fearing the death of their children, the the thirst of the elderly, the, the death and fatality of all of their animals, and their own rotting in the wilderness. It's not a minor thing. It's not like they came across a field of prickles. They're about to die if God doesn't step in. And some of us need to hear that, that even if it is the chronic illness, even if it is something that people want to say and is genuinely a legitimate affliction, the the marital disunity, maybe married to an unbeliever that makes it difficult, or, or, or a loss of a job, or the ending of a career because of an unfair government mandate, or, or, or a mistreatment from somebody, or, or the ending of a, of a reputation because of a, an unfair slandering. These are all legitimate th- bankruptcy. I'm not saying it's not legitimate afflictions, neither would God. But he makes the difference between legitimate afflictions, for which we can cry to him about, and legitimate grumblings. There's no such thing. No one. Not even Christ on the cross dying for sins that were not his. It was permitted to grumble. Not even Job, the death of everyone in his family, except for his nagging wife, he wasn't even allowed to grumble, but rather rebuked for even asking permission to question God. God loves us, and he loves us far too much to let us become grumbling people. But grumbling forgets God's promises. These people, had, had God had promised to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And had, had he promised to deliver them and then boot them into the wilderness? No. Was there still many, many promises that God had made to them which were not yet fulfilled? Absolutely. At any point, if they had remi- remembered the promises of God, which are always connected to the mission of God, If they had just been missional and thought, let's trust the promises of God to achieve his purposes and what he's seeking to accomplish, if they had done that, then it would have taken a gulp of this chunky, milky backseat water, and they would have said, hey, I guess there'll be a miracle. I guess that God's going to do something great because we can't die. He's made promises, and he's literally the I am the unchanging, the immutable, the faithful, steadfast, loving, kindness God. What's he going to do? Break a promise? Fail his mission to establish his people in the land? Verse 3, in chapter 16, they said, You have brought us out to this wilderness to be killed in the whole assembly. Oh, if they had just had faith in God's promises, and, and faith feeds on God's promises. Grumbling thrives on forgetting God's promises. Faith thrives on remembering God's promises. If they had just remembered his promises, they would have been confident in the mission. They would have not been thrown so tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of water. They would have been fine. They would have trusted. Lack of faith causes grumbling. If we remember Paul in prison, uh, uh, His faith in God's promises held him, he trusted them, he remembered them, and they empowered him. So that in prison, as we read in 2 Timothy 2, he was able to say, I'm a prisoner, and I'm suffering, I'm bound, but the word can't be bound. 
Jesus has promised to build his church. The gates of hell cannot mount a defense against it. It cannot stop simply because I'm in prison. Therefore, I'm rotting, I'm suffering, I'm dying. I'm sure I'm about to lose my head and be given up as a drink offering. And yet, praise be to Jesus, the elect are going to be saved. Salvation is going to come and Jesus is going to give glory to his church. The promises of God through Jesus informs the mission of what he knew to be future and therefore it filled him with faith. Maybe you are easily discouraged by the state of the church. Not this church, come on. But, you know, the church. Maybe maybe you are easily grumbling against the, the likelihood of the success of the Great Commission. Maybe you are even grumbling or, or easily thrown off about the state of your soul. Do you easily grumble? Do not, do not, full stop. That's the Bible's command. Do not be like this generation. Do not grumble. If you complain, if you're quickly to feel sorry for yourself, quickly to feel sorry for the church, quickly to feel sorry for your children and their generation, don't. Bolster your heart with the reality of God's presence. Equip yourself with the promises of God. Equip your friends, your children, and everybody's children with the confidence in God's promises. Say to your soul like Moses did, stand firm, fear not, and see the salvation of the Lord. God has a mission He's called us to it. He cannot and will not fail. He has promised us that, so stand up in that. Faith holds fast to God's promises. Grumbling forgets God's promises. Fourthly, grumbling forgets God's past victories. We we remember here that they are are only a few days removed from God's tremendous past victory. Over the last few months, the, the plagues and then the Red Sea. And yet here they are, unsure, at another body of water. Like that at least should have been the reminder. It's like when the disciples complain to Jesus about not having enough bread for the third time. You you can't, you're a really disciple? And Jesus goes, I just need to hear it from your mouth one more time. When there was 20,000 people who who fed them, meat, yep, how many leftovers? 12 baskets, thank you. When there was 4,000 men plus women and children, who fed them? Yep, that's right, I did. How much leftovers? Yep, seven baskets. Okay, so we remember this, and you're hungry? That's your concern, disciples? It's the Israelites doing the same thing, forgetting God's tremendous past victories, and so of course they're going to grumble. This is what This is what uh, 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 verse 7 of Psalm 106 recaps this situation as. Psalm 106 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, they did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. This, I think, is speaking of the whole situation. This complaining about bitter water, but also just a few days ago, do you remember before the Red Sea, they were cornered between, between Egypt and the Red Sea and they turned to Moses in chapter 14 and said, is there not enough graves in Egypt that you've taken out here for us to die in the wilderness? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Again, this, this refrain, this refrain of forgetting what God has done. Faith feeds on the promises of God, but faith also feeds on remembering the glorious triumphs of God in the past. Forgetting God's past victories is a shortcut to weak faith and grumbling. Do you remember the works of God? Do you remember his works in biblical history? Do you know your Bible enough to recall them? Do you know of God's and do you remember his works in church history? His times of revival and reformation. Do you forget those or do you recount those to yourself? Do you remember his works in salvation through the cross of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection? Or even in the timing of your own conversion, do you remember back and look on your baptism and remember your testimony and know that God has been powerful to transform your life? Do you forget that? Don't forget it. Do you remember God's works when he answers your prayer? when he intervenes in situations, when he, when he brings about a solution to problems, when he shows his tender mercies in life that you don't even remember asking for? Do you remember his works? If so, then you, have a, you will ha- have the makings of stronger faith so that you do not grumble but have confidence in all that is to come. 
when you come up to another situation, you can say to your soul, soul, hope in God. Soul, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. But what else we see in times of grumbling? Grumbling is also... And I, I almost don't even want to say this because I, I know the, the, the Israelites' tendency. I know my tendency, how prone we are to wonder. But I have to say it because it's true. Grumbling from God's people is an opportunity for God to show his grace. I know as soon as I say that, we're tempted to, to oh, oh, he'll be gracious. That, that's good. Then, I'll, then I can say, I, I know that as a pastor, well, if I tell him God's grace, won't we, won't we all just continue in sin? But no, that's, that's not how God's grace works in us. As we remember God's grace, the truly born again people are spurred all the more into obedience. But don't let God's grace ever become a training in entitlement. This is what happened to the Israelites. This time they grumbled, God gave them sweet water. Next time they grumble, God gives them manna. The next time they grumble, God gives them water from the rock. The next time they grumble, God saves them by the prayer of Moses. The next time they grumble, and so and so on it goes. First was a blessing. The second was good. The third was expected. And from here on out, God's in our debt. Don't allow God's grace at your bitterness or grace at your grumbling to ever train you into the normalcy of that reflex. Rather, allow God's grace to lead you to repentance. But we see here in verse 25 through 27 the amazing outpouring of God's grace. Moses went and cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water. I said, but that, that wouldn't have been my leadership reflex. Here's a big stick. Thank you, Lord. This is, this is going to be good. Let's get them lined up. Who was, who was it up the back? Who, who had a problem? Come on, stand up here. God intervenes. And says, no, no, the water. Throw it in the water. Okay, so, so there he goes. He lobs it. Kaba tosses it into the pool. And, uh, and in it goes. And the water became sweet. I love that it doesn't just become neutral. It doesn't just become fine water. It becomes sweet water, better than before water. The, the kind of water you get crisp and cold uh, after a long hike and you pull into a servo and there it is, just spring water from Tassie or something like that. The beautiful Australian crisp water. That's, that's what it tasted like. Mineral water, cordial, whatever you would have loved. That's, that's what it tasted like to them, a sweetness of the drink right there in the moment. And yet, God goes further. He says in verse, at the end of verse 25, There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. It's not saying that he's coming up with a test. That's saying over this whole situation, this was a test. God had tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and if you do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. God had tested them, and they had failed miserably, but God did not consume them. He gave them a miracle through Moses, and they drank the sweet water. And in this moment of him making a new covenant with them, one element that we need to realize, and we will look at this further in chapter 19, they were in a different kind of covenant than we Christians are in with God. They did not work for their salvation in heaven. They did not receive forgiveness of sins because of their deeds. But in the earthly covenant that God had made with them pertaining to the land and their blessings and their protection, that was, as Moses says here, it was a conditional covenant. Unconditional in the sense that he would, if these people failed, he'll kill them and start with the next generation, but conditional in terms of each person's involvement in it. That is to say that the blessings that God would give Israel would actually be dependent, according to the covenant, on their own obedience. God would give them laws, and according to their obedience, they would be blessed. And according to their disobedience, they would be cursed. It was a, it, it was, it was a, it was a works-based relationship in that sense. And yet, just because it was a work covenant, just because it was a merit covenant, unlike the gospel, but just because it was like that doesn't mean that all the blessings they got they deserved. And it doesn't mean that they got the fullness of the punishment they deserved. 
Even in that covenant, which was dependent on their obedience, God still went above and beyond and was gracious to them. And he said to them, you're stressing, you're worrying, you're complaining and grumbling as if you think I look at you like I looked at the Egyptians. When their water turned to blood, they worried and scrambled and grumbled and, 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 and went thirsty. Not so with you. You are different. You are my covenant people. I love you. I am Yahweh, your healer, not your judge. I'm here to bless you and keep you and make my face to shine upon you and fulfill my promises in you. He wanted them, by God's grace, he wanted them to experience a confidence in his love to them. For the Christian, as we see God being merciful to them, we see an example of God here in our Christian life. Look, Look at what actually happens next. In verse 30, it goes even further. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, Oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter. Verse 27. <clears throat> then they came to Elam, where, they, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They didn't stay at Marah. They drank there and then kept walking. They came to Elam, where there was 70 palm trees, one for every elder of Israel. There was 12 springs of water, one for every tribe of Israel. God, I don't know how long it takes a palm tree to grow, More than a couple of days. God had been preparing this gift for his covenant people long before he even saved them from Egypt. He had been preparing this tender mercy for them long before they complained. He is a gracious God pouring out sweet blessings from heaven to them. And and Christians need to take this as a reminder. As Paul said, do not grumble. Don't be like them. How can we flip it on its head and rather obey where they failed? Maybe you are in a situation which is having extreme stress on your soul, high anxiety. It is a situation that seems overbearing or painful, very frustrating, maybe even scary, and you fear for your health and safety. Maybe there is even something on the horizon that seems fatal. You have nothing to worry about. Everything is going to work out just fine. And if you don't have faith in God, and if you prefer to blame, and if you forget his past victories, and if you don't know his promises, then what I just said sounds like a cheap, nasty, easy hallmark card. It'll be fine. But if you know the promises of God, if you have fed your faith with remembering past victories, if you're not looking to blame if you are confident in who God is for us in Christ, if, you are, if God is with you by covenant, then he has given to you innumerable blessings in the past that you would fail to count even this afternoon. And therefore, we can say truthfully from Scripture, backed by the promises of God, everything is going to be okay, even if you die. Heaven. If Paul can say this wrapped up, awaiting a sword against his neck in the Roman Empire, if he can say that he rejoices in his sufferings for God, if he can say that he knows God's purposes are not limited and the word of God is not bound like he is, if he can say that, then every single one of us can say, Jesus is risen from the dead. There's a new world coming. Nothing I lose I am entitled to. God is good and in control Everything is going to work out. And for the non-Christian, those who don't believe, those who are not confident that their sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, it is not, you're different to the Christian. It's, it's not, I'm so glad you're here and we love that you're here in our midst, but you're not in danger of grumbling and then being inappropriate towards your God. Rather, you're already in the danger. Jesus says that those who do not believe are already under the blanket of God's condemnation. In other words, you don't need to do anything more to be held guilty before God. You don't need to do anything today to set your life going to hell. You are already going there. But in this picture of what we see happen today, as Moses throws the stick into the water, we see a picture of what God does for us in Jesus. God turned the source of death into a source of life by taking away its bitter sting. God turns the bitter water 
into sweet water by taking away the bitterness in it so that what was a source of death becomes a source of life and joy. And Jesus does that to death itself. Because Jesus died on the cross for your sin, he took the sin of the bitterness of death, he took sin out of death for those who trust in him, and he died the bitter death for sin. He died the punishment and the penalty for sin. He tasted the bitter cup. He drank the cup of God's wrath. And then when he was resurrected from the dead, having accomplished atonement, having finished salvation, now death remains. We still have to go through death, but it's no longer bitter because its bitterness sin has been taken away. And it's no longer a source of death. It is instead a source of life. That as we go through death, we see Jesus. As we go through dying, we're going into that experience of painless bliss and joy. But that blessing, that death becomes life, that blessing that sins are taken away and there is no bitterness in death for you, that blessing is only for those who have considered Jesus' death on the cross as their own. Who have known Jesus as the God-man, truly God, truly man, dead for sinners, resurrected on the third day, reigning in heaven, and he's going to come back one day. If you believe that, and if you trust that, only if you trust in him for your soul's forgiveness, then your sin can be taken away, and even death becomes a blessing to you. That's the promise of Jesus Christ to you today. Do not grumble, but have faith in God. Trust in Christ. Let's glorify him. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, that, that you even join the dots for us. As we read this story, Paul picks it up and tells us, here's the application, do not grumble. Father God, we don't want to put Christ to the test. He who has been our redeemer, he who has saved our souls from the pit, he who has redeemed us from our sin and chased away every fear of death, he who has, he who has brought us into the presence of our Father with exceeding joy. He who has done away with our sin and given us a righteousness. He who has protected us every day since conversion. We are confident that he will lead us home. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved wretches like us. Father God, we praise you and we glorify you. And we ask you that you would lead us to remembering your promises. Lead us to remembering your past victories. Lead us to remembering who you are for us in Jesus Christ so that we are not ungrateful, we don't rush to blame, we do not grumble, but in thankfulness we honor the Lord Jesus. We give our lives like Paul did. We give our lives like Jesus did. We give our lives like Dorcas did, like Phoebe, like the saints of the New Testament who know. Whatever suffering may come upon us, we can't gripe against you. We can't grumble. We receive the good with the bad and say the Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be his name. May our lives be used for the furthering of the gospel. May our lives be used for the building up of the church and the expanding of the Great Commission. And Father God, for those in our midst who do not know Jesus, who are still in the bitterness of sin and knowing that hell awaits them, then God, today would be the day that they trust that they look to Jesus and, and hold out uh, their hand to him to be saved, that they, that they receive forgiveness that is so free and so on offer for them today, Father God. Would you do this? Bring life out of death for them. We praise you, Lord God, and we pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.